when there's blood in the streets, uh Lift up, check under the carpet Many try, but few become Master of the mark market Well, Peter Cooper, thanks very much for coming on Masters of the Market, the inaugural video version of Masters in the Market, but uh, I know how busy you are, so incredibly grateful that you've, uh, you've taken the time to come on for a chat. Thank you, Chris. Pleasure to be here. Now, I thought we'd just start by going back to when you were a public servant with the New South Wales State Super Board. What was a, a Peter Cooper in his 20s thinking about? What were your hopes for your investing career? And what was your mindset like back then? Um, it was a bit all over the place, Chris. I uh, joined the public sector um, back in 1987 at a late age of 27. And uh, sort of in my uh, early 20s was ducking and diving around, multi multitasking, the original millennial, some people would say. <laughs> and um, so I had a, actually a choice of, um, when I came back from overseas, traveling around, backpacking as people used to do back in those days, I had a kind of a choice of two jobs. Um, one was to go into a corporate you know, business analysis Roll um, on $27,000 a year or take a public sector position on $17,000 a year. And um, I chose heart over head, if you like, in terms of the monetary um, and went for the public sector job because it was in, in an uh, investment department. Uh, back then, State Super Board was the New South Wales Government Employees Superannuation Fund and was the largest pension fund in the country at the time. And it was back in the days of no computers, typing pools, um, and I, uh, as an assistant analyst, effectively wrote research that gathered dust on a, on a library, uh, sort of in a compactus. And so I, um, you know, had a really uh, incredible time there, and I can talk later on about some of the insights and learnings that have sort of transcended and transmitted into Cooper Investors today, but it really gave me I guess a safe harbour to do lots of research and lots of reading. Um, took a lot of uh, a lot of opportunity in sort of public sector hours to explore the world of investments. Something I didn't actually really know a lot about in terms of the professional end of town. And um, yeah, just sort of developed a whole bunch of thoughts and insights and principles into investing. But one of the great things about the public sector was really this kind of pristine, quiet atmosphere. Some would say um, backward and, and not very performance orientated, but there was an incredibly smart group of people there. Um, and it was, you know, what I kind of learned, I've actually made money out of, out of this experience in, in later, later careers, that uh, never, never kind of disrespect the public service because there's lots of incredible people inside there. Perhaps the bottom line's not the one that you and I are used to. Um, but there's some really deep thinkers and it was a place where I could, I guess, mature and um, go deep. And I really love the, and this is the bit that we've, you know, transported in the Cooper Investors, I really love the commitment to long-term investing. So doing, doing the work, allocating the capital and waiting and not kind of being back in those days, there wasn't a lot of measurements, there wasn't a lot of stress or anxiety about, you know, monthly or yearly performance. And so we've tried to build that into the, the culture at CI for, for different reasons than um, um, perhaps for the reasons in, in the public sector. So you speak about having some time to read widely in that phase of your career. What sort of things were you reading and who were your influences at the time that you were learning a lot of? Um, in terms of influences, it was very much books. And I, you know, there were a number of people inside of State Super who I learned from. But in terms of the great kind of investing principles, it was very much through books and observation of, of other people. 
One of the first books that I uh, read was the George Soros book, Alchemy of Finance. Now, I'm not a kind of a top-down sort of guy, but, um, you know, he talked a lot about um, re reflexivity and the relationship between kind of asset inflation, collateral and um, the virtuous circle, if you like, followed by the vicious cycle. And so um, it was a really key kind of insight that I actually saw in the property boom and bust of the early 1990s. And so that, that general concept has been very, very significant. We talk a bit about some of the um, uh, cycle aspects that, that we deal in within our investment philosophy. But the really, really big influence, and I you know, went crazy on this, is just reading all the, all the Buffett letters, going all the way back to the original partnerships when he was a kind of a young, young man. And um, I eventually uh, decided to write Warren a, uh, and, and Charlie Munger a, a letter in, in search of a job. And, Did you rock up on Charlie's doorstep? Is there any truth to that there, story? There is, there is, and as a result of not getting a reply, I actually rang um, the office in Los Angeles through to, um, got through to the secretary of Charlie Munger. And, um, so what age were you when you were doing this? I was about 29, maybe hitting 30. And yeah. so, um, so it, back in those days, you know, they were, they were pretty popular, but certainly not the level today. And anyway, um, she was kind of passed on the message to Charlie and the message came back, look, there's no jobs here, but happy to do breakfast at the Californian Club in Los Angeles. And so I'm a, I'm a public sector, right? Backwater, yeah. you know, nobody. And um, so I rock up in Los Angeles to the Californian Club and it was just after they had made that um, significant acquisition of Wells Fargo's stock Wells Fargo was sort of in the in the drink and so yeah. um, I had this incredible one hour, one and a half hour breakfast. It's a huge get, isn't it? I mean you look oh, at the auction for the Buffett a, dinner now, it's about yeah. five million bucks, yeah. isn't it? hundred percent. And uh, you know, so that was in that was just, you know, and I was I was completely out of my depth in, in the conversation in, in some respects. But you know, like it was just such an incredible, I guess, experience and um, you know, to actually be in the presence of somebody like Charles Munger. And I remember, you know, one of the opening bat comments, he asked me, you know, what do you, what do, you do, Peter, type of thing. And, uh, you know, then he says, and I, I actually almost prefer Charles Munger in terms of his directness and in distillation of wisdom into short sentences. And he says, we're just in completely different businesses, <laughs> you and I. And uh, then we, we went from there. And what he meant by that was, you know, the investment management industry, if you like, is open-ended and marketing, and they were effectively, as he described it, kind of a, you know, a uh, closed-end private equity organisation um, investing in, you know, real real assets, real businesses, not not promoting performance and open-ended issues. And so that, that was, um, you know, that, that statement has haunted me basically all my life because you know, really tried to be true to true to label, true to principles as an investor, um, and uh, you know, dancing that sort of fine line between that and constructing portfolios for other people, and all the mandate requirements, the legal requirements, um, you know, the performance pressures and so forth to running kind of money for people who can sack you tomorrow. Um, it has it has its sort of psychology around it, and he made a very big point about about that as being one of their, their great advantages, that they kind of got this closed-end mentality. The other, um, so, <clears throat> and just to finish on the, the Munger, I sort of went off the whole, <clears throat> went to the couple of the AGMs. <clears throat> um, I'm actually going to go there this year, taking my kids along to give them a kind of final immersion. I don't think there's, you know, lot, lots left. And uh, so I've kind of done the full circle. I went, you know, for a decade or more, just, you know, couldn't, couldn't kind of stand any more Warren, Warren stories. And, 
Um, but look, uh, you know, as popular as they are, that you just cannot get better in terms of the, the wisdom that's so articulately laid out and thought about um, and communicated. I just think it's, you go to their website, I keep on, you know, we don't really have marketing people, but it's just this ridiculously simple website mm. and it's got the most incredible wisdom for free embedded in the 30 odd years of, of newsletters. Um, so the, the other super, and, and probably the most um, combination of, of these three, but the, the Peter Lynch story had just such a huge impact and probably reflects you know, so much of my own, I guess, uh, beliefs and way of, way of investing. You know, this idea of uh, you know, getting out there, getting around the traps. Um, you know, we, we kind of proudly say we do, you know, 1,000 one-on-one visits with companies a year in a very methodical way. And, you know, it really originated back to that, I guess, Peter Lynch methodology of open your eyes, get out and actually see what's happening at customer level and stakeholdership level. So he also had a, had a simplicity, you know, for my brain. Um, it was just ideal. It was actually, you know, pretty uh, straight, straightforward. And, um, you know, I think one of, the, one of the complexities or one of the issues in investment, you know, there's so much complexity, there's so much information and just being discerning on how to filter out, you know, the noise and focusing on the signal is really the trick in the trade, I, I think, as, even as a long-term investor. Um, and so Peter Lynch and his, um, his sort of uh, colleague in the UK, there's a kind of an equivalent <coughs> called Anthony Bolton. Um, and so he, uh, he's had a sort of version of, a, of a Peter Lynch, were very, very influential um, on my uh, investment, investment thinking and kind of, um, yeah, so there's, you know, lots of versions and Masters of the Universe type type books that I've read over the years, but uh, they would be the main ones. And you speak about observation, not prediction, at Cooper Investors. Does that speak to where you sit in the risk profile? I look at sort of venture capital investing, where it really is predicting what the world's going to look like in 5, 10, 15 years, and you have mostly blow-ups and a couple of spectacular successes. Yep. Is that the right way to interpret that statement, or how do you feel? No, it's, it's much... Um, it's much more philosophical than that, and I believe the concept can be applied to anything. Um, you know, picking uh, picking fund managers, picking companies. It's actually a philosophy of research. Um, one could say it's got elements of the uh, you know call it the scientific method, if you like, around evidence and you know distilling down into observable facts from hypotheses and predictions and models. And I think it is true to say we're not down at the VC end of the, of the, uh, the, risk, the risk sort of profile. I was uh, very interested listening to Peter Thiel talk about his, um, you're familiar with Peter yes. Thiel? the Facebook, the Facebook 10% owner. And PayPal and um, he, he sort of, um, he didn't talk about observation, not prediction, but I, he talked very much about like, you know, there's this sort of probabilistic aspect to venture capital, you know, 20% sort of make all the money and 80% you lose money on. But he, he kind of approached it like every, every one of those stocks that he's investing in, he believes is going to be a, a success story in the level of due diligence and kind of his methodology um, is very reliant on, on high hit rates. Now, how that works out in his portfolios, I, I can't talk to, but it was interesting how, you know, focused he was on not, not sort of just relying upon portfolio and, um, you know, the odd, the odd winner to make up for all, all the losses, which is sort of how we think about 
our investments, and I can talk a little bit about our own hit rates in a moment. The observation, not prediction, um, really, uh, really goes to the heart of setting, setting up some hypotheses and um, you know, looking at you know, why these, these hypotheses may or may not work and really getting into, and, and this is the, the key nuance, I think, really getting into the incentives and behaviours that sit behind observable facts. Because I guess anyone can sort of say, well, that's, that's a fact and that's, that's not. Um, but there's a sort of very strong belief in the philosophy of investing that behind every numeric, and so, uh, you know, people often talk about things like, you know, you can't, you can, you can be creative with accounting, but, you know, cash is cash. Well, I actually don't believe that. We can talk about that because you can manufacture cash as well, um, and companies do, do all the time. Um, but we really like to get behind numbers in annual reports and balance sheets and really understand the behaviour. Um, what, you know, what are the motivations, what are the contexts, what are the historical norms that sit behind these numbers? And so that's, you know, where we're really looking into the second level of interpretation of, you know, the facts and these hypotheses that we, we have on investing in companies. So it's a sort of a qualitative approach initially. That's your main focus um, when you come to analyse a company? We, we have a deep belief that qualitative investing is where we can add, add value. Yeah. And we do a lot of quantitative analytics, but the value add and the value proposition is very much in the, the pointy end of that statement, that qualitative first investing. It's kind of where we're getting into the probabilities, the, um, the levels of conviction around you know, management teams, getting into, you know, anyone can look at a track record of a management team and kind of done lots of attribution analytics on this and we suffer a little bit this, from this ourselves where, you know, great track record, front page of the you know, financial review as a guru, um, and only to find that it's a slippery slope to the, you know, the other side. And, so our kind of methodology is always sort of asking the question, you know, what's the track record like and can they keep it going? And like, like in teams, Chris, it's very much philosophically believe in the end everything's cyclical. You know, we're talking about secular and cyclical, but life, biology, the planet, the universe, um, and investing, there's, you know, this ebb and flow aspect. And so when we look at these, you know, attributes of investing, like management teams and industries and business models, it's always with an eye of, well, can they keep it going? Um, and so the, um, we, we use this term pattern recognition. Um, and so when we're looking at you know, management teams, it's why have they been successful? What category of management? We, we like to have these genres for different aspects. We've got something called subsets of value. Um, we have three categories of management teams, um, family-linked, founder-led, companies, owner-operated companies, um, where there's very, very strong alignment with kind of shareholder concepts, something like a Macquarie Bank would be a good local example of that. And then what we call specialist management teams. These are kind of the turnaround, you know, professional hired guns in a sense, taking yeah. companies private or public to private, you know, IPOs and so forth, where the teams are, you know, not necessarily embedded forever in, in the cultures of those companies, but they have they can, and sometimes external management, um, whilst not our preferred sort of management structure, can actually add a lot of a lot of value. So we kind of categorise these. And do you have a bias towards the family-owned and run we style a, model? We have a, what we're looking for is proprietorship. You know, yeah. people who really, really believe in the business, in the customers, in the employees, and, and, and the community affects generally. And there's a deep belief. And so that's why I say, you know, Certainly the owner-operator cultures and the family founder companies is yeah. where you've got 
you know, people talk about skin in the game, but you get, I think the real bit is the soul in the game. It's yeah. this emotional connection and deep, deep knowledge around the nuances of industry, all the people, how, you know, how an industry works takes years and decades to build up. And it's something, very much noticed this, um, you know, these new management changeouts come into, particularly in, you know, large cap land. And, you know, it's just so disappointing because they talk a big game, they've had the McKinsey, you know, they bring the consultants in and, you know, under the heading of patent recognition, we've seen this movie before. Mm. And, um, you know, we've got one in the press at the moment with, with Mike Kane, who we actually quite liked in the early stages. And this is this patent recognition added a lot of value because he was a kind of deep industry knowledge, but, you know, suffering from the... Uh, sort of hubris uh, disease. <clears throat> and, so, and so how do those businesses, how do those managers behave differently if they are proprietors versus institutional-owned businesses in, um, in broad generalisations? Look, I, I think it is general because, yeah. um, you know, we can't uh, tarnish all the uh, companies with, with a generalisation. There are good and bad founders. Just got all the consultants offside that are watching. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, um, one example is the way they think about risk. And um, it's, it's a perverse nature. And I'm going to pick on BHP, and this is BHP of old. We actually think the, the new chairman and um, the current uh, you know, new appointed uh, CEO are actually doing a fantastic job, and we actually own BHP. So this is a, a yesteryear yeah. story. And so top of the you know, 150 high commodity prices, right? Those guys could not spend, and Rio Tinto as well, um, they could not spend enough money and anyone could look at the chart of you know, all their exposures and commodities. And so they had a, and I wasn't in the boardroom, but they had a bunch of happy clappers there, surrounded by consultants, justifying why this time was different. And so, you know, when it all blew up, um, at the bottom of the, the commodity cycle, they spent zero. You know, you could have owned the whole industry. And so they had this sort of pro-cyclical approach to risk when times are good, they feel you know we can invest and continue on, and it all continues on. When the opportunities are there, they're nowhere to be seen. Now, the proprietorial companies are much meaner and conservative. The longer that cycle goes on, because it's their money and their family, and they know how hard it is to make and how easy the good ones, how easy it is to lose. But they're very aggressive when the opportunities come onto the you know the scene for various. Reasons, so it's kind of an opposite um, reflection upon risk and how you deal with risk and opportunity. The other, the other thing that's very noticeable is continuity. Um, these sort of a lot of these professional managers, they just keep on moving up to mm. bigger jobs, and they kind of leave the mess behind for others to uh, to clean up. Whereas, you know, when there's a lot of investment and and soul and emotion in the game, they they kind of fix the problem up and really face up to the problems that they encounter, um, work through it, and they have the skill sets. You know, they know where the, the bodies are, so to speak, and they know, um, you know, the nuances of the industry around how to fix up the problems. So that would be a, you know, a couple of examples. So I've read before you say you're not overly interested in macro um, type political events. Uh, what level of interest do you take in, say, something like the US elections coming up and the likelihood or possibility that someone like a Bernie Sanders could get in, does that start to enter some of your economic models around, you know, if the helicopter money comes in or, or do you just ignore that and stick to stock-specific 
uh, issues? <coughs> Look, we're, we're a, um, def- definitely interested in environment and to the yeah. extent that macro, you know, has big impacts upon environment, we're, we're interested. But I guess the um, filter that we look at these things through is, you know, long-term lens and observation, not prediction. And so, you know, where we can have, I guess, insights into how is this going to affect industry um, and how are we going to deal with all the complexities of, of top-down, um, we often say we don't know, okay? And so not, not that we're not interested, mm. is we just don't know. Now, you know, on, on Bernie Sanders, um, you know, I've, I've taken a bit of an interest in, um, in the uh, US elections. My partner's American. She actually, her cousin's... Um, was a nominee to the Supreme Court, and okay. so the family's in, embedded, you know, in, in kind of the p- political conversation. So I had the opportunity over Christmas to get into all all of these sort of nuances and watched a few of the Democratic uh, um, candidates do their debates and so forth. And so, you know, look, Bernie's got his issues, and you know, he's tagged as a as a socialist, and um, I'm, you know, probably not a fan. Uh, having said that, he, he's got some interesting insights into, you know, the healthcare system in, in America and he's the only candidate in the, the short debate that I watched who actually articulated a really, really key point and that is America spends twice as much as Australia and Western Europe per person on healthcare. Um, and for the bottom half of Americans, it's the worst healthcare system in the world. For the probably the top 20%, it's the best healthcare system in the world. Um, and so, you know, he kind of has a really interesting way of articulating the, the landscape. Um, but I'll, I'll leave it at that because we, we can't really add that much value around sort of extrapolating his policies and helicopter money um, is not uh, sort of the exclusivity of the Democrats no. or the Labor Party here. The, um, the Trumpster is... Uh, <laughs> well, it'll be fiscal stimulus with Trump and it'll be yeah. helicopter money with the Democrats yeah. potentially. So, the, you know, the general politics drops quickly down into industry... Um, impacts of government policies on industries. Um, re, you know, regions very interesting. You know, looking at kind of demographics and you know those southern parts of the US. And um, one, one thing um, that has had a you know very big influence on us through a slightly different lens is just this kind of uh, confrontation that the globalisation um, is uh, involved in, whether you know Western Europe. Here or, or, or the US, and I think, in terms of my career, I guess you could say I've been a massive beneficiary and yeah. a tailwind. And I think one of the really big themes, and it's going to get real, really messy. Um, so I don't, don't think it's easy to come to conclusions from an investment perspective. But one thing I definitely believe in is this kind of return to some sort of localization um, and representation, because so much of the politics is being, you know, driven by disenfranchised. People, whether it's the inequality statistic that people totally generalise on, and it's probably an issue, um, but it needs to, you know, play out, I guess, through social politics and different cultural lenses. But you know, you can see that that alive and well. Um, that drops into kind of policies. Taxation is yeah. another thematic. I think um, whilst America has dropped, you know, dropped corporate taxes, other taxes are going through the roof, and so. You know, there's a lot of um, gross and net conversation to be had about, you know, who's a beneficiary and who's going to be a loser out of some of these p- 
policy changes. So we're definitely interested in, in those type of, I guess, conversations around, you know, industries. Um, migration of populations, um, you know, you've in, in, in North America and, and, and Australia for that matter, you know, these sort of coastal areas, sunbelt areas, um, low, lower taxation areas will be kind of beneficiaries of population and industry. And you can sort of see, particularly one of the great things about US, you know, the industry is just moving around all, mm. all the time. There's kind of little Silicon Valleys popping up, you know, around um, recently in, uh, in Miami. And, you know, Florida was sort of a retirement village, you know, 20 years ago. What's well, a very vibrant economy today. There's lots, lots of different aspects to that economy. And uh, I think there's 30 million people in, in Florida. So these are big, you know, big countries in their own right, um, or equivalent to countries in their own right. So you've got a reduction in globalisation, which I assume would be somewhat inflationary. Then you've got ageing demographic and technological change, which has proven to be deflationary. What wins in that arm wrestle? I think, um, you know, there's this, um, first of all, com community-based and getting back to, you know, our, our conversation about management teams, so delivering real value to local local communities. And so, you know, in the local um, examples would be companies like Lifestyle Communities, for example, as in, you know, hitting two, two uh, targets there. One, they've just got this incredible referral rate because they actually treat people who go into mm. these, their villages in a very, very special way. And you see that through the, I guess, the uh, sales rate, the waiting lists, the referral rates. And so I think they're getting 60% of their sales now from, from referrals. So it's a kind of a statistic to, to zero in on. In addition to that, you've got this wave of, and, and they're in the, they like to call it, you know, resort style living. Now, unfortunately, I've uh, sort of uh, qualify as a customer. Um, and so they've kind of broadened the category even further from retirement. Um, but, you know, they've really, really just, you know, hit the bullseye in terms of identifying um, a, de a demographic product. And I think, um, you know, whether it's sort of nappy producers in, in Japan or retirement yeah. villages um, or technology, by the way, hitting into this. And so, you know, with lots of these kind of mega themes, it's, there's level one, level two, level three. And I think the technology side of things in so many ways, you know, can develop new business models um, you know, for young people, old people. Um, we're seeing a lot of, I guess, uh, kind of, we'd call them productivity type plays in terms of verticals, B2B, you know, so the, the big uh, capitalizations are in the, you know, in the retail or B2C models, the Facebooks and the Tencents and, of the world. Well, there's a, <clears throat> you know, there is a decades, um, many decades of opportunity and growth to remodel the economy in the B2B space. So platforms and verticals that might be niche, um, we're invested in a company called Constellation Systems, which is basically a collection of, um, you know, verticals dealing with government efficiency, um, back offices of, of companies, um, you know. So I think, um, you know, a confluence of both demographics and, you know, globalisation, the need, the productivity stats are really interesting one, you know, sort of run out of steam, you know, and this is a bit of an irony, you know, with all the talk about, you know, technology and AI and mm. data analytics, the actual stats on employment and productivity don't reflect, I guess, the exuberance in, in the uh, investing community around, you know, how, how things are going to change so much. And so that's a kind of interesting micro-macro 
phenomena. But you've worked, you've worked for a long period of time in the real world, if you like. I, I speak to some people who are CEOs, they said in the early 90s, if they needed some legal documents done, everyone would go to a meeting, everyone would be in the same room, they'd have a discussion and the document would be executed within an hour or two. Now an email gets sent off, it gets marked up by one person who sends it off to another person who marks it up again. And even though there's this perception that uh, things are much more efficient through technology, yeah. their view was it was actually more efficient, you know, in the early 90s when you had a, a secretary typing up letters and uh, all this technology wasn't around. Do you feel there's any truth to that? Oh, look, look um, absolutely. And um, I go back to, uh, seriously, used to write out by hand research reports, yeah. go off to a typing pool, come back two days later. And yeah. <laughs> So um, what, what I think's happened, there's a kind of an inefficiency, um, it's almost a neuroscience point, just because you can see information doesn't make you more informed if there's just more of it, more distraction, and everyone's got the same information bombardment at the same time. There's a kind of a, a backstory around the inefficiencies of, um, you know, technological access to, to information. But I think, look, there, there are so many, but you know, now I kind of top up my own reports type of thing. So, you know, there's kind of nuances around around this and there's lots of industries that won't, won't be here tomorrow. And um, that's been the case time immemorial anyway. Um, so, you know, where, where are we going with all this? I think there's going to be change. There's clearly change in the, in the workplace. Um, um, but there are, you know, having said that, you know, we're looking for space up at the other end of um, Collins Street. There isn't any. It's just fully booked out, you know, occupancy vacancies at the world, you know, world record lows. Um, simply, um, well, what, one of the main reasons is there's a hub effect up that end of Collins Street between bankers, investment managers, um, government consultants and so forth, where there's a real face-to-face -face network effect. And I think you see that in... Um, you know, in big cities around the world. You know, the, the kind of idea of a mega city has not gone away. In fact, it's accelerating where you get infrastructure. And I often reflect, live at Middle Park, you know, you've got access to, you know, incredible sporting facilities, a magnificent botanical garden, catch the tram into work. Well, you know, the outer suburbs kind of, and certainly regional towns don't have that level. So there's a lot of paradoxes, I think, around, you know, how it's going to play out with, with technology and what people um, want and just getting to the investment themes here, you know the the three mega mega themes that we see in our our journeys. First of all, government. It's just huge and getting bigger in terms of regulation, taxation, influence in uh, implicit and explicit in either industry. Doesn't matter where you go, um, government is going to be a really big big factor. And, and is this Australia or this is global? Well, well this is worldwide phenomenon, yep. but you know it's very applicable. To, to Australia, so getting you know one's head around well, how does that impact your kind of decision making around you know the, the worth of an asset? I think is you know worth really sort of spending a lot of lot of time on. The second one is what I'd call the new economy, which is what we've been talking about. You know, there's going to be new business models. Um, we're not so much just focusing on you know new tech or VC, but we're very interested in how does technology, and this is the kind of the investment theme for people investing in existing companies, how do they actually use that technology to be better companies, to connect better with 
customers and suppliers and so forth. And so local exam, we've got just loaded full of those. They're, you know, one level, they're kind of old industrial companies, um, both globally and domestically, but they're really using technology in a smart way. And I think um, Woolworths would be, a, would be a call out. They've really gone hard. CBA Bank, really hard on, you know, getting to the forefront of where they need to be technologically. Um, and, you know, the, the benefit of that is they've got incredible reach already and so they've basically got the wallet already, which is the hard thing to get, and now they're all about expanding the share of, of, of that wallet using new ways of doing, doing business. And so finding these new business models, like, a, you know, a zero, for example, um, what we're interested in is in kind of incumbency. We're not looking for the, you know, the, the new guy to knock off the, the incumbents. We're looking for those incumbents who've got the the wherewithal to reinvest and really, you know, make themselves even even better incumbents than what they are. And we talk a lot about this idea of economies of, of scope. And so, you know, there's economies of scale, but very underappreciated the economies of scope. Complementary products that can be, I guess, dropped in on a, a platform business or a, or a franchise and so forth. Who's an example of that that's doing it well in Australia? Um, certainly zero. I mean, they know more about you know, National Australia Bank, so National Australia Bank, biggest SME um, banker here, I'd, I'd argue that Zero know more about NAB's customers than NAB know because they're seeing the behaviour and it's, the, you know, that's where the, I guess, the AI machine, the late, the, the cycle of payments um, and uh, so they've got just so much kind of rich data on SMEs down down to postcodes and, and, and locations. So that, that's really, really powerful. Um, you know, in the, in the global... Uh, seen a thing, somebody like a Colliers, which is you know you probably think of as a you know, real estate flogger, but they're a really powerful platform business with a lot of IP around facilities management and asset management, and they really kind of um, I guess take their internal um, information. Macquarie Bank is just a, probably the best example. They just masters of reinventing and taking um, you know the original infrastructure business was came out of a tax minimisation or optimisation business back in the 80s, and they just take IP and basically find an adjacency and off, off they go. I mean, the third, the, the third area, and, um, you know, I think this has got so many different angles, it is this idea of community and connection. And you just see it in young people. Um, you see it in older people, but, you know, you just see it in employees. Um, you're really wanting to belong mm. to a tribe, okay? And I, I know it's a little bit anthropological, but, you know, I really, really believe in it. And you see it in these companies, these great leaders really enthuse, you know, ownership and belonging, um, whether it's an employee or a customer, loyalty. Um, and I, I just think, you know, in this sort of globalisation thing, this idea of being genuine and authentic. Now, you've got to, you know, you've got to make money and, mm. you know, corporations are there to, you know, serve customers and shareholders. So, you know, companies need to work out the balance and, and, and all that stuff. But the winners will be those with you know real value propositions um, that connect to these um, you know community concerns and the need to belong. Do you think that's almost a void that's being left from religion, particularly in countries like Australia, where religion is not nearly as prevalent or as popular as it was generations ago? Yeah, well, that, that could take us on a very uh, interesting. Do you think uh, it's being fulfilled by some? Um, yeah. I mean, you look at Elon Musk; yeah. people view him as a god. Some yeah. people, <laughs> yeah, you know, almost like. You know the uh, the re recutting of of society and how that 
that looks, you know, the 1950s model's not coming back. Yeah. I don't, I don't believe, but the missing, the missing bit is this kind of genuineness. I think people kind of, you see it in, um, whether it's right or not, or whether it's the right candidate, you see it in politics, you see it in, in uh, social, social media, you know, this kind of tribalism that, mm. that runs through um, decision-making. And I think, you know, this, and it sits in within our, you know, very, in the middle of our, I guess, values and cultural philosophy and on organisation for ourselves, this idea of authenticity, being you know, kind of true to your word, you know, my word is a bit of a hackneyed thing, you know, my word is my bond, is kind of um, uh, been adapted by business and, you know, society um, where, you know, people kind of tell lies and they keep their job. I'm not quite sure why that came about. Back in the old days, it was a jewel out the back. <laughs> so, yeah, I do think there's a kind of an aspect of um, old, old values that will recycle back in a new, you know, new cut society. And you sp- you've spoken publicly quite a bit about meditation and that's something you do daily. And you mentioned uh, the State Super Board, how one of the pieces of that culture that was so valuable to you was having some time to do some reading and, and perhaps less pressure than you could have had elsewhere in the corporate world. How do you weigh up those um, beliefs and, and values with also valuing hyper-competent employees that are working hard and, and driving hard to create value for your, um, your investors? I guess my interest in um, meditation and yoga and contemplative philosophy would would have originated out of sort of personal anxiety and stress and... And when did you start doing that? You know, I had a... uh, I remember um, when I first moved down to Melbourne, um, probably 1994, being super stressed out and uh, getting up at 5.30 in the morning. I read some little book on meditation, going to my room and kind of meditating for 20 minutes and running off to work and then, you know, after three weeks. And I was just kind of in my own uh, little bubble, if you like, and... Um, you know, after three weeks, I just kind of dropped the ball on that and moved on to the next thing. So that was my first introduction. It wasn't sort of really until probably about seven years ago um, I was reintroduced and got some proper instruction and uh, I have a very supportive partner who's really helped me in, in the discipline of um, yoga and, and meditation. And quick funny story, just up at the church opposite 101 Constra, I was in level 29 you know, looking at the monthly numbers, they were absolute shit and, um, and uh, you know, really, really stressed out. And so in the church opposite on the corner of Russell and Corn Street, still there today, um, I used to go and sit in the, in the church and kind of just, you know, hold my head <laughs> in my hands. And that, then I noticed underneath the church around it, or, of Corn Street, there's a little meditation centre called the Menagerie. Menagerie, it's called. And so it's this little cave, very dark lighting, um, a little rock with some water flowing over it and chairs around the outside, okay? And so this became a regular uh, place I'd just go to just to kind of have some breathing time. Um, but the funny bit of the story, which is when I stopped going there, is I'd, I'd be there in my pinstripe suit, be sitting there, you know, meditating, really dark light, and then other people would start walking in and I'd start to recognise other people. <laughs> so it was very embarrassing. So... Um, yeah, I um, kind of used meditation initially as a, you know, as a way of dealing with my anxiety and, and stress and so forth. But the whole purpose for me around uh, these contemplative practices is really 
getting uh, self-awareness and uh, really thought a lot about this in terms of the investment process because we do all this training and read books on Warren Buffett, et cetera, et cetera. But what I can say is that unless people actually get to know who they are, mm. and it's the great misnomer or it sounds a bit funny, but people actually don't know who they are. And this is where it sort of begins. You de-stress, you start to actually feel your own, I guess, uh, purpose in, in life, um, figure out your ranking of, of values and goals and aspirations. And from that place, you can then sort of move forward and start filtering, you know, some of the um, things that you want to get involved in, including, including investment. The other aspect of, and uh, you know, this is, um, I've, I've kind of linked all of these ideas back to um, investing. And I can say these, you know, contemplative or spiritual practices, some people term them, you know, are just a goldmine if you actually apply them to life, including investing. The other attribute um, that uh, really tried to embed in uh, CI is this idea of discipline, and not in an authoritarian sense, but in self-discipline. And so working out, you know, what are those habits that you have to kind of train at and build, um, you know, in the, in the pursuit of finding, finding gold on the street, you know, removing all the distractions, sticking, sticking to one's knitting is really, really difficult. And that's why in investments, the statistics are terrible for active managers. You know, that's a long distance horse race and um, most fall at the, you know, the 10 mile mark sort of thing. Um, so I think these practices, and there's lots of different aspects to them, but they really start to build internal, you know, confidence, internal knowledge that then can be applied to um, investing. Now, I'd just like to finish off with three final questions. What was your first ever investment? Um, it was a real estate investment um, in a uh, penthouse in, <coughs> in uh, Brisbane in the early 1990s and interest rates went from 15 to 21% and the value of this uh, beautiful in, in, you know, very prestigious suburb called Tawong went, uh, went down at least, or went down, I lost about 30, 40% of my money leveraged and uh, that was, that was uh, pretty, pretty ugly. And what advice, investment or otherwise, would you give to your 18-year-old self? Um, start early, read, read extensively and get, get into this contemplative um, mindset of really understanding yourself before you adopt uh, investment philosophy because I really, really believe this, that sort of you're matching, you know, long-term, short-term, um, you know, asset classes, what, what is it that you actually really like because to keep it going in investment land, you know, it's a, it's a long-term thing and uh, I think unless you kind of marry your own sense of purpose up with those investment philosophies, you won't actually actually make it. So start early and, uh, you know, get into the idea of understand what self-discipline actually means in terms of that investment philosophy. And what's the most common mistake you see retail investors make? They, they make, uh, I can explain this through, if you look at 20 year studies on investment managers and then you take the best quartile, this is a US study, the best quartile of those fund managers um, and then ask how did the average investor do? What you find is the average investor actually underperforms the market because they put the money in after mm. or at the top of the cycle and then they, and we saw this in the GFC, then they take the money out. And what that shows is they're not really clear on their strategy. You know, like, because the strategy should incorporate in my career every 15 years, we get the 40% dip. So the strategy needs to incorporate something like that. Mm. Um, and even perhaps the 100 year 80% uh, down 
um, so you can actually really stick, because the best opportunities really come in those, in those down dips. Um, if you're not positioned to survive those and invest in those, you're going to do poorly. Peter Cooper, it's been absolutely brilliant. Thanks again for, uh, for coming on Masters of the Market. Thanks, Chris. Really appreciate it. Thanks, buddy. Supply when there's blood in the streets, uh, lift up, check under the carpet. Many try, but few become master of the mark market. market. market.